thousands of protesters gather in Washington, D.C. to show support for Palestinians and denounce the Israeli military's continued bombardment of Gaza. For Saturday, it's November 4th. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. Coming up, we'll hear more from NPR's reporter at the march. Also on today's show, how one man has helped thousands of people take up running. He said, well, what do you mean you can't go for a run with everyone? And I said, well, if I'm if I'm in their ears, I can. Later, they say, listen to your elders. So we get advice from a 106-year-old. What are your thoughts on all the technology and cell phones we all have? Well, I usually think we sure wasted a lot of time. <laughs> and we visit a cannabis social club in Berlin. Those stories and more after the headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Arab officials are pressing the United States to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. But as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports, Secretary of State Antony Blinken argues that would allow Hamas to regroup and threaten Israel again. Jordan's foreign minister says with every Israeli missile unleashed on Gaza and every child killed, the region is sinking into what he calls a sea of hatred. Egypt's foreign minister calls this collective punishment against the Palestinians, not self-defense. But Secretary Blinken says a ceasefire would allow Hamas to repeat what it did to Israel on October 7th. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just a few days ago, a senior Hamas official said that it was their intent do October 7th again and again and again. Blinken says he is encouraging Israel to minimize civilian casualties and implement temporary pauses for aid operations in Gaza. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News. And we want a ceasefire now! Thousands of pro-Palestinian protesters marched in Washington, D.C. today calling for a ceasefire, an end to U.S. aid to Israel, and an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. This after more than 50 people were arrested yesterday during protests at several congressional offices. It's one of many pro-Palestinian protests in major cities around the country, including New York, since the Hamas-Israel war started on October 7th. The EU's top leaders in Kyiv saying Ukraine has made excellent progress toward membership. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says Ukraine reached many milestones in its preparation for membership despite fighting off Russian invaders. Talks could start as soon as next month if Ukraine fulfills all the requirements. The EU has committed around $90 billion to Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion in February of 2022. Only half the people eligible to receive specially targeted food help, or WIC, are actually getting it. NPR's Maria Godoy has more. WIC is a federal program that offers healthy food, nutrition information, and other resources to low-income women who are pregnant or breastfeeding, and to children up to the age of five. It serves nearly half of the babies born in America. The new USDA report found that some 12 million people in the U.S. qualify for WIC, but just 6.2 million are actually getting help from the program. In a statement, the agency said the findings suggest that more effort needs to be made to help eligible people connect with the program and to make it easier to enroll. WIC is a federal grant program funded annually by Congress. The USDA says early evidence suggests more people are turning to WIC for support. Advocates worry the program may not have enough funding to meet demand into the new year. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. A jury has acquitted a former Boston prosecutor of rape and assault. Adam Foss was accused of raping a woman in a hotel room in Manhattan six years ago. He said the encounter was consensual. A New York jury delivered its verdict yesterday. Foss was a prosecutor for the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office in Boston before he started a criminal justice organization in 2016. A new public safety plan in Holyoke is facing some opposition. The mayor wants more resources in response to the shooting of a woman who was eight months pregnant. Alden Bourne has more. The shootout in early October left the woman, who was on a bus nearby, critically injured. Her baby died. Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia's safety plan calls for a million dollars in new spending as part of what he calls a comprehensive approach. It includes the hiring of 13 police officers, a citywide camera surveillance system, and additional neighborhood outreach. City Councilor Will Pueyo says what happened is a terrible tragedy, but... I do think we have to have caution, especially on the part of the city council and looking over the stuff that the mayor proposes. I mean, 13 police officers is one of the thing he, things he wants to do. It's like, how are you going to pay for that? You know. The city council will meet next Thursday to consider the mayor's plan. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The 2024 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year is making history. Deshaun Washington is the first black male teacher to receive that award. He teaches fourth grade students at the Maria Hastings Elementary School in Lexington. His lessons show students how to resolve conflicts by discussing their concerns with each other. And Quincy College is starting a bachelor's degree program. The school has historically offered two-year associate's degrees. The Boston Business Journal reports that 200 students are enrolled in four-year programs in business management, computer science, and psychology. Enrollment at the college has dropped nearly 20 percent over the past three years. The Bruins take on the Red Wings in Detroit tonight. The Celtics are in Brooklyn tonight against the Nets. 58 degrees at 5.06, mostly cloudy tonight, a low in the mid-40s. Partly sunny tomorrow, near 60. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. Tens of thousands of people have gathered near the White House in what is being called the Free Palestine March. It comes as President Biden has requested more than $14 billion in military aid for Israel. And marchers are protesting that funding and calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza war. For more on that, we turn to NPR's Laurel Wamsley, who joins us near Freedom Plaza in D.C. Uh, Laurel, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, the streets here have been full of people all afternoon. Many of them have been waving Palestinian flags or wearing the kufiya, the traditional black and white scarf of Palestine. Um, It's just a ton of people here. It's all very peaceful, but there's also been a solid police presence. Um, There are a range of speakers at at Freedom Plaza and chants that would erupt from time to time. And then about an hour ago, um, the folks at the gathering started marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm. Um, This march was organized by a range of pro-Palestine groups um, in conjunction with uh, a lot of peace and justice uh, more broadly organizations in the U.S. And they organized buses from across the country as far as San Francisco, Miami, Texas to be here today. So people are coming from all over. Uh, what are they telling you? Yeah, we spoke to a lot of people, and they had a range of backgrounds. Um, one we spoke with um, is a young man named Yunus Barkouche. He's a 24-year-old from Jersey City, um, and he says his family comes from Morocco. But he says, first and foremost, he's here as an American. Just as an American, I mean, as someone who grew up in, you know, public schools, I was raised 
to believe that the United States condemned right atrocities, war crimes, uh, heinous government acts wherever they saw them, right, regardless of who committed them. And he says from his perspective, the response from Israel has been disproportionate. He says he's not president, he's never led a country, but he wants a ceasefire. He wants mediators to come together to resolve this. We also spoke with Amara Rana. She's a 39-year-old who lives in D.C. She said she came to the march because her neighbor's a Palestinian. And she says as a Muslim herself, it's been emotional to be here at the march today. No, it feels amazing. Like, I'm trying to stop myself from crying, but it, the unity is amazing to see so many Americans come out, and I hope Joe Biden sees what he's losing. She says Biden voters supported Biden because they believe in equality, but what she's been seeing from the Biden administration right now, she doesn't feel like he's supporting the rights of Palestinians. So they're sending a message there. Uh, Laurel, I wonder, did you speak with any folks there that were uh, Jewish? Yes, we did. We spoke with a man named Pedro Kramer. Uh, he grew up in Argentina and he now lives outside D.C. And he was there holding a sign with the Star of David on it. And he was here with his baby in a stroller. No, I was raised as a Jewish, Jewish family, Jewish school. And I was always taught that we, what we do is we seek justice. We seek justice everywhere, everywhere and for everyone. And what is happening right now is the farthest, you know, that just justice can be. He said there's no difference between his own son, who's here at the rally, and any child living in Gaza, who he said are dying as we speak. He said he's been questioning what Israel is doing, and that it's led to a rift with his family and his friends, even with his best friend, who called him an anti-Semitic for questioning Israel's leadership right now. So you were speaking to people just a few blocks from the White House. When you talk to them, what are they asking from President Biden and from the U.S. government? The word on everyone's lips here is ceasefire over and over again. You ask what they want, they say ceasefire. You know, they come from a range of experiences. Some grew up in the U.S., some uh, came from Palestine. Um, but there seems to be a sense that nothing is going to be able to happen on this um, that they want to see until, um, until there's a cease in hostilities that will allow mediation to happen and for aid to, to reach the people. That is NPR's Laurel Wamsley at the scene of the Free Palestine protest in D.C. today. Laurel, thank you so much for your reporting. You're welcome, Adrian. The... Sorry. It's no secret that Americans are unhappy with Congress. So it's not surprising that, according to the Pew Research Center, a whopping 87% of Americans say they support congressional term limits. Now, despite its popularity, though, term limits are considered a long shot, and some experts say that's a good thing. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. Support for term limits is one of those rare issues that appeals to people from across the political spectrum, which Casey Burgett at George Washington University says makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of dysfunction in our politics, particularly within Congress. Congress is one of the most unpopular institutions we have. And so when, when we have something unpopular, it makes a lot of sense to, to refresh the people who serve in that institution. Nick Tumbalides with an advocacy group called U.S. Term Limits says term limits solve this one big problem in politics known as an incumbency advantage. 97% of incumbents get reelected. Last election cycle, 100% of Senate incumbents on the ballot got reelected. And so from a democracy standpoint, from an election standpoint, our elections are not very democratic. 
Tumbalides argues that if politicians knew they had a limited time in office, they would spend more time working for their constituents instead of focusing on their next election. He says there's evidence that members of Congress currently spend most of their time raising money. They're not studying the issues. They're not reading these thousand page bills because they're so focused on getting reelected. They're so focused on keeping the job rather than actually doing the job. Tempoliti says term limits would also make politics less contentious because lawmakers would be less focused on rising through the ranks and more focused on serving their constituents. But we actually know quite a bit about what term limits actually accomplish. That's because there are 16 states that have them for their state legislators. Susan Valdez is a Democratic state lawmaker in Florida, which is one of those 16 states. I've seen how the term limits have affected the policies at a state level and how much longer it takes to get good policies done. As a member of the Florida House, Valdez only gets four two-year terms in office. She says she thinks of every term like one school year. So her first term was like her freshman year and so on. My next election will be for my senior year. And these six years in the Florida House have gone by so fast that really and truly the first two sessions, you're really just getting to know the ropes. This is a key critique of term limits. Institutional knowledge is incredibly important in being an effective lawmaker. And so when you term limit someone, you're, you're, you are effectively cutting out their incentive to invest in, in learning how to do the job. That's GW's Casey Burgett again. He says term limits often kick lawmakers out of office when they finally have enough knowledge to be effective. To delve into policy issues at the depth that they need to, um, and to, to really dive into how the procedures work, which just takes years, because again, there's no training ground for this. And according to many academics who have studied term limits, they don't solve the core problems in American politics that make people dislike Congress. Things like gerrymandering, political polarization, the influence of special interests, as well as money in politics. Burgett also says it's a misconception that because lawmakers aren't sticking around a long time, they won't be beholden to anyone but their constituents. In reality, studies have shown that, that term-limited lawmakers behave differently, that when you sever that electoral connection, when they're no longer dependent on voters to remain in office, then they start looking out for number one. They start looking out for themselves in a lot of different ways. And that includes cozying up to lobbyists to line up their next job. Burgett says a lot of lawmakers don't want to just forfeit all the relationships and policy expertise they gained in office. But Florida State Representative Susan Valdez says the biggest problem is that term limits don't really make lawmakers better. She says mostly it just makes everyone feel rushed. What I find is that we wind up trying to create legislation like we check our spaghetti. Let's see if it sticks to the wall, then dinner is ready. In the end, it is largely up to members of Congress to impose these limits on themselves. And the U.S. Supreme Court has said that congressional term limits might even require a constitutional amendment, which is a much more difficult hurdle to clear. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. A new Gallup survey tracks how often people prepare home-cooked meals in countries around the globe. And it finds women are cooking about twice as many meals as men. And as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, there's only one country where this gender gap has disappeared. Traditional gender roles have long been evident in kitchens worldwide. On average, women cook about nine meals a week, men about four. 
This started to change during the pandemic. With a lot of people at home, men were in the kitchen more, and the survey found the gender gap narrowed. Chef Mike Friedman remembers this time well. You know, there was a lot more time, a lot more banana bread and sourdough being baked at home. So, you know, it only makes sense that those numbers would reflect that. The survey found men cooked more and the gender gap narrowed in 2020 and again in 2021. But the latest results show this trend isn't holding up. Andrew Dugan is a research director at Gallup. This year, however, was the first year that the gender gap had actually widened. So that was a big surprise for us. In countries where it's common for men and women to work outside the home and share parenting duties, you may expect to see more equal time in the kitchen. What that might suggest is the traditional gender roles are starting to reassert themselves. Chef Mike Friedman has his own take. I don't know, I think women can handle more on their plate. I think maybe men got lazy. The survey results vary from country to country. The gender gap is widest in countries including Ethiopia, Egypt, and Nepal. Those with the lowest gap include Spain, the UK, and France, with the US not too far behind. The only country where men cook more meals than women, the survey finds, is Italy. As with many things in Italy, a lot of things that you think are social norms, they, they get flipped on their head. In the United States, women cook about two more meals a week than men. Friedman's instinct is that the survey may not capture the whole picture. He says in his house, lots of meals are collaborations. I know in my own home, my wife does a lot of cooking, but we talk about it and we talk through what should we make tonight. And a lot of times she'll start and I'll finish. And then I'm always left with the dishes. I don't know why. Not a bad trade-off. I would much rather cook than clean up. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR and at WBUR, we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and Associated Sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston. Learn about their German holiday market on December 9th and upcoming admissions events at GISBOS.org. It's 58 degrees at 518. Cloudy tonight, sunshine tomorrow and Monday. WBUR supporters include the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra, Benjamin Zander leads Wagner, Hindemith, and Brahms tomorrow, November 5th, bostonphil.org, and Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, showcasing the all-new 2024 Subaru Outback, available now, citysidesubaru.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Arab officials are pressing the U.S. to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, but Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that would allow Hamas to regroup and threaten Israel again. The EU's top leader is in Kyiv, saying Ukraine has made excellent progress toward membership. A key report on Ukraine's membership bid is expected Wednesday. Talks could start as soon as next month if Ukraine fulfills all of the requirements. And the Kansas City Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins are in Frankfurt, Germany. For a game tomorrow, it's all part of an NFL push for international growth. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. Each year, NPR Student Podcast Challenge brings us the voices and stories of thousands of young people. And this year, we heard from a lot of students who wanted us to know that their generation is keenly aware of how our climate is changing, and they're wondering what they can do. NPR's Janet Ujung Lee reports. Many of our student podcasters this year described what it's like to live through extreme weather events ones that are becoming more common or intense due to climate change. We've listened to entries on flash floods, hurricanes, droughts, and wildfires. For these students in Kentucky... On July 28, 2022, the rain started pouring down to the point where waters rose up to 20 feet in some areas, destroying everything in its path, injuring many and destroying many homes, leaving 38 dead. That's Riley Bowman, a student at Morgan County High School in West Liberty. Riley and his classmate Carolina Johnson made their podcast on the deadly flooding that hit Kentucky and their hometown last summer. The students interviewed their classmate Hunter Noble, who experienced it firsthand. Now that he's lived through a major flood, he has some advice. Don't drink the flood water. Don't be stupid. There's way too many chemicals. I mean, there's one dude who went to the hospital. You don't want to be like that. The Western youth of today are in a situation where water and water shortages are at the front of our minds. Water and the lack of it were front and center in the minds of these middle schoolers in Montana. Through the years, the situation with water has changed greatly, not only in Montana, but worldwide. What was once an easily expendable resource is now something to take into careful consideration. A group of eight middle schoolers at Peak Academy reported on dealing with water shortages in Bozeman. It's a growing town that used to depend on snowpack in the mountains. But with that source of water becoming less reliable, Bozeman is looking for new solutions. And the kids turn to the grown-ups to ask what they can do to help. We're going to have to secure more water. Use water more wisely and use less water for outdoor landscape irrigation. Being aware of climate change and, and how that's going to affect our water resources. A few hundred miles west in Washington state, it's the fear of more intense annual fires that's gotten young people worried about the future. Wildfires are a problem and they are dangerous, but there's ways to prevent them. That's from a podcast from Roz Hines, Gia Carana, and Sadie Pritsky, fifth graders at Chautauqua Elementary School on Vashon Island. The students talked about how wildfire smoke has affected air quality and their school life, like taking indoor recess for a whole week. These students asked, why is this happening in the first place? Why are wildfires often started? Spark from a, an exhaust pipe in an RV can set off a major wildfire or a problem with an electricity transformer or something like that. But also silly things like setting off firecrackers in a national forest and stuff. So there's a lot of reasons, but you're seeing a lot more uh, of those happening just in general because of the drier conditions that we are typically experiencing due to climate change. In their podcast, these young people are trying to make sense of what's happening around them by doing research and asking what they can do to prevent or tackle the climate challenges of their future. Janet Ujangli, 
NPR News. Over the past couple decades, the number of people living past 100 years old has doubled in the U.S. And research, researchers predict that rate will continue to climb. But what does it actually feel like to live to that age? A member station, Cap Radio, has a new podcast called This Is What It Feels Like. And for one episode, host Tara Lopez spoke with Glenna Lucille Walters. The resident of Rio Linda, California, was 106 years old at the time. Over the years, I had heard small stories about Glenna, how she plays her piano nearly every day, and how she likes to watch The Bachelor every Monday night. What do you think about The Bachelor and Bachelorette? What do I think about them? Well, I think they're pretty silly. <laughs> you know, they all they do is kiss. <laughs> Just kiss, kiss, kiss. From one to the other, it's wonder they don't something. <laughs> I was the bachelorette then. <laughs> I was intrigued, not only because she's 106, but because I wanted to know how someone stays inspired at that age. Because when we talk about getting older, we usually frame the conversation around loss. The things we lose as we age, our cognitive abilities, our mobility, our awareness, our loved ones. I've always thought getting older sounded so lonely, but sitting with Glenna in her living room, I saw firsthand a future that I wanted to be a part of. I met Glenna in her home in rural Rio Linda, California, where she's lived for over 40 years. Her maroon-colored recliner is in the center of the living room, next to a stack of books and an Alexa. There's a wall of family photographs in the hallway, lined up next to a couple of framed letters from Barack and Michelle Obama, congratulating her on her 100th birthday. Her granddaughters, Sarah and Cassie McFarland, are with us, helping facilitate the conversation. Because Glenna is hard of hearing these days. Grandma, did you ever imagine you would be this old? I never thought about it. What do you think about it? Do you think <laughs> I do because do of you. I mean, I mean, do you think you're going to be that old? I think I could be. Well, but yeah. I don't walk like you always did. <laughs> you probably get this like asked all the time, but do you have any secrets? You you mean apple cider vinegar? Is that, is that your secret? That's, that's what I tell people because they're always asking me that. I said, well, I just drink a lot of apple cider vinegar. The best day of Glenna's life was the day she was born. February the 1st, 1916. When I hear Glenna say the year she was born, 1916, I don't even know how to process that. And I'm even more baffled when she tells me that she's as old as her local public library. That library was put there the day I was born. I'm not kidding. Glenna was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, with her mother, father, and two sisters, Carrie and Ruby. Music has always been Glenna's first love and was a bonding force for her and her sisters. She tells me that she and her sisters played multiple instruments growing up and would perform in her town at local establishments. 
After she finished college, Lena decided to follow her sister to Colorado. It was there she met her future husband, saxophone player Howard Duke Walters. They introduced us and we rode in the rumble seat of the guy's car. What's a rumble seat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just an open car, but it's got a seat in the back. (laughs) And that's how I met him, my husband, Howard. Glenna and Howard would end up having four children, Dan, Glenn, Susie, and Wendy. During this time, Howard played saxophone with the popular big band, the Sonny Denham Orchestra. In New York, we met Sinatra. He was on the program with Howard. (laughs) I've got Sinatra's, what do you call it? Autograph? Yeah. Playing in a large orchestra meant dividing up the money. Glenna tells me that that's what led her and Howard to form their own family band. Baronets. Glenna played piano and sang. Howard played the saxophone, and their son Glenn played the drums. Soon the Baronets got their first gig in Michigan. Oh, that was a dandy. (laughs) Okay, so picture this. Glenna was touring the country in a van, hauling a trailer around with a full-size piano, all the while caring for a newborn baby. In the 50s. Well, it was our first job, and we did that for several years in the summer. The Baronets played for years, until Howard developed emphysema and had to stop playing the saxophone. But Glenna kept touring, with her son Glenn and daughter Wendy hidden the road, hauling that piano and trailer across the country. I had to do the whole thing and (laughs) drive all these places, you know. We had two kitty cats. (laughs) We had two kitty cats. In the van with you? Of course. It's these moments where you get a clear glimpse into Glenna's spirit, her natural ability to go with the flow of life, to forge ahead, no matter what, and to have fun while doing it. Do you have any important lessons that you've learned over the years? Lessons? Mm Mm-hmm. You mean, what should you do and what you shouldn't do? Yeah. Well, you shouldn't do drugs. (laughs) And I don't do drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't don't smoke. Glenna and Howard moved to Sacramento in 1975, watching their children create their own families. But in 1991, Howard's health was severely declining. After years of battling diabetes, He didn't want to go to the hospital, and I made him go because he had diabetes. And he just wanted to die. He says, I want (laughs) to, I want to croak, is what he said. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody says, oh, he wants a Coke. I (laughs) I said, no. He doesn't want a Coke because he drinks Pepsis. (laughs) I'm struck by the ease in which Glenna is able to talk about loss. 
I'm sure she's had years to process this and to tell that story, but it's still remarkable to me that she's able to laugh at her own personal losses and see the lightness within it. And even though Glenna has this incredible way of letting go and living in the moment, she does reminisce about Howard and their relationship while I'm there. I fell in love with that saxophone. <laughs> yes. I was very much in love with him. After Howard died, Glenna says she found a new sense of self by taking cross-country trips to state and national parks. All by myself. <laughs> and spent money on myself. I did. <laughs> she still plays the piano and reads a lot. Grandma, how many books do you have in your journal? 4,100. 4,000 something. Since when? Since I turned 65, I was keeping track of the books I read. You've read that many since then? Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> I've got them in the book. How long does each book take to read? About a week. <laughs> Why don't you tell them what book you got from the library, the big one? Well, it's right over there. It says Barack Obama, <laughs> and it's that thick. No, no kidding. I'm, I'm going to read it, <laughs> I think. Is that your next book that you're going to read? No, I think I'll leave that till last. I'm struck by her ability to plan ahead at this age, but even more so to have the optimism to plan ahead. As we're wrapping up the conversation, Glenna's granddaughter Cassie asks her, What are your thoughts on all of the technology and cell phones we all have? Well, I, I usually think well, you sure waste a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> waste a lot of time. What brings you joy? What brings me joy? Music. Mm. I like music. It's the best of everything. She turns to the Alexa that is sitting on her side table. Alexa, Andre Previn needs to play some jazz. Ta -da. That was Glenna Lucille Walters of Rio Linda, California. She passed away earlier this year at the age of 107. And you can find more of her conversation with Tara Lopez on the podcast, This Is What It Feels Like, from member station Cap Radio in Sacramento. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The goal point in your life, you will probably speak in public. You know, give a toast at a wedding or share your opinion at a town hall, maybe. And whether this idea fills you with dread or excitement, LifeKit has some tips about how to improve your public speaking. Here's Kyle Norris with that. The goal of public speaking is to feel comfortable, speak like yourself, and be present so you can connect with your audience. That's what Lauren Dominguez-Chan says. She's a speechwriter who worked with U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Morthy during the early years of the pandemic. Dominguez-Chan says when you're going to talk in front of people, first figure out your core message by asking yourself, If my audience could only walk out of this room with one thing, what would that one thing be? 
She says your core message could be a feeling like wanting your audience to feel appreciated or a call to action like inspiring people to make art. Then brainstorm a bunch of vivid stories that relate to your core message and make sure those stories engage the senses. Think sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. People remember these stories and images and it's okay to have like way more than you can possibly include at first just so you have material to choose from. Once you begin writing, remember to write for the ear. That means write the way you talk with your friends. Dominguez Chan says short, simple words and short, simple sentences are the way to go to help make your presentation clear and easy to understand. With those stories in mind, Dominguez Chan then makes an outline, which she likes to think of as a roadmap. For yourself and for the audience, where the main points are like big landmarks and then the stories and the details will make it vivid and textured. And you can sort of figure out how all of these things fit together. As for how you prepare your speech, Dominguez Chan says no hard and fast rules. Whether you write your speech word for word and read it from the page or from a screen, memorize it or use bullet points on three by five cards, find a system that works for you. Finally, practice your speech in the mirror, in front of a supportive person, or at a place like a Toastmasters International Club. I did note that we began one minute late, but that's okay. We can make that up. Like at this meeting in Blaine, Washington, where they time everything down to the minute. Here tonight is Rachel Oman, who has grappled with the lifelong fear of public speaking. And it's gotten to the point where it's crept into even just talking to people that I don't know well one-on-one. -on -one. one way Omen addresses her fear at these meetings is by improvising speeches on impromptu topics, like the coldest I've ever been. My brother and I had to walk a mile in 60 below weather. I mean, so here cool. Omen is, going from feeling terrified to now winging it in front of a dozen people. I thought I had frostbite and I was so mad when I got home, but that was definitely the coldest that I've ever felt. At Toastmasters, the other members give you feedback about your overall presentation, your grammar, and how many times you use filler words like um. Omen says that aspect of focusing on the filler words she uses and trying to weed them out has helped her feel less nervous. Lauren Dominguez-Chan says the point of all this preparation is to set yourself up for success, not perfection. She says if you do stumble or lose your place during your speech, take a beat and take a breath. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Norris. I should really be taking notes. For more tips and life hacks, go to npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. At 6, it's the Moth Radio Hour, and it runs until 8. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. After seeing news alerts all day, sometimes it's quite hard to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app. We'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. 55 degrees at 539. Cloudy tonight. Sunshine tomorrow and Monday. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. 
and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is calling for a humanitarian pause in Israel's bombardment of Gaza, but he says a ceasefire would embolden Hamas and threaten Israel. This as thousands of pro-Palestinian demonstrators marched in Washington, D.C. today, calling for that ceasefire and an end to U.S. military aid for Israel. A man from Arkansas is in custody after police in South Carolina say he tried to drive his car through barriers at one of the largest nuclear plants in the country this week. And state-organized rallies took place across Iran today, marking the anniversary of the seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 1979. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Ma. The German government has endorsed a law that would legalize recreational cannabis by the end of this year, though with some limitations. The law, which Germany's parliament is now considering for approval, would allow adults to grow their own marijuana plants for personal consumption at home, or alternatively, to buy and consume small amounts of pot through nonprofit social clubs. NPR's Andrea Gutierrez visited one such club in Berlin. It's one of those mild evenings in Berlin that's too nice, too warm to spend indoors. Yet the lounge is buzzing with chatter. A few people hover over snacks and coffee. This is a meeting of CSC High Ground. They are a cannabis social club. We want to produce cannabis for the members in future when it is allowed. And now we are a political society and activists working on the legalization. That's Oli Vak Jorgensen. He's on the board of the year old group. And members may get their wish by year's end. That's when Germany is expected to legalize cannabis for recreational use. And the only legal way to obtain cannabis will be to grow it as a member of a nonprofit club like this one, established through one of Germany's beloved traditions, the Verein, or member association. Club member Ani Kruger explains it. We have this law in Germany that allows us that seven people, if they agree, can form a Verein and can form a legal entity and they have to follow certain rules. So we organize a lot of our social activities in this legal form. There's clubs for dachshunds and horse riding and gardening and, of course, sports. Every kid in Germany is a member of one or two sport clubs that are Verein. Like any other Verein in Germany, CSC High Ground has a leadership board and bylaws. And members come from all backgrounds and genders and careers. Oli says there's one well-known underground cannabis breeder who has a double life as a teacher. But he will stop teaching in schools when he can live from his growing and breeding. 
Medical marijuana is available in Germany, but it's tightly regulated. And commercial dispensaries are still a no-go, for now anyway. That's a change from the original plan backed by the three-party coalition now running the federal government. According to Robin Hofmann, a researcher of criminal law at the University of Maastricht, that change was to appease the European Union. Cannabis is illegal within the EU. So countries with the most relaxed pot laws, such as Malta, still operate in a legal gray area, even in Amsterdam, home of the coffee shop. It's not really legal in the Netherlands, it's merely tolerated. Robin says the EU has to take into account the interests of all member states. So say Germany adopts a more progressive drug policy, there's still Sweden, which is tough on crime and doesn't want drugs to cross the EU's open borders. That would mean that if one member state legalizes cannabis, it would also lead to more drug tourism and it would lead to more consumption in other member states that probably have a stricter approach to cannabis and that is perceived as a problem. The draft law does include safeguards to keep pot away from children and teens. Clubs must appoint prevention officers, and no club may be located within 200 meters of schools or playgrounds. But member Zilia Getzmann believes there's a better way. The best way to protect young people is to educate them and tell them the honest truth, not fairy tales. That's what she did with her own two teens, who grew up knowing she smoked pot. They're the only teens I know who don't smoke pot. And all the parents I know who smoke pot behind it, they have problems with their kids trying it. But my kids say, it's so uncool, my mom does it. There is a robust legal market for cannabis in Germany. The federal health ministry estimates that 4.5 million adults used cannabis at least once in 2021. Ole expects that without commercial shops, the illegal market will continue to flourish because clubs alone cannot meet the demand. We are not business because we are always working for the members, not for one or two bosses. It's always for the members. 120 plus CSC high ground members whose use of cannabis may soon be above board. Andrea Gutierrez, NPR News, Berlin. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, It goes without saying that whether you're buying or selling a home, the process can be expensive and confusing. Just ask Nick Krause, who recently became a first-time homeowner. How much did you know about the home buying process before going into it? Basically nothing. Yeah, I knew knew vaguely what a mortgage was. we watched some, like, you know, Instagram reels and some YouTube videos about, like, what to look for <laughs> in visiting homes and stuff like that. Like almost 90% of people who buy homes nowadays, Nick and his wife decided to enlist a real estate agent. You know, somebody to help scope out listings and handle contracts. And yet, despite doing all this work on their behalf, Nick and his wife were a little surprised that their agent did not charge them a dime. I think she just kind of mentioned that they would get paid by the seller. We didn't have to worry about it. Do you think it's weird that the seller pays your agent because the buyer's agent is supposed to represent the buyer's interest, but the seller is the one who pays your <laughs> agent. <laughs> I did, yeah. Um, not gonna complain. <laughs> yeah, well, you know who is complaining? The plaintiffs in a massive antitrust lawsuit against the real estate industry's biggest players. They say the way agents get paid artificially inflates home prices. Consumer advocates like Steve Brobeck agree. There's a conflict of interest. The compensation is all out of whack with the value that the consumers receive. And changing that compensation model might come sooner than you think. 
We'll tell you all about how that lawsuit could upend the real estate industry as we know it. That is tomorrow on All Things Considered. If you're someone who does a lot of running for exercise, there's a good chance you've got a go-to app for that, right? Uh, when it comes to tracking miles and planning routes, there's RunKeeper fans and Strava heads and Map My Run devotees. But none of these apps inspire quite the same emotional or maybe even spiritual response as the Nike Run Club app. And to unpack why, I'm handing things off to my colleague, Scott Detrow. The story starts at a meeting at Nike in 2017. The discussion was all about how hard it is to get people to start running, which is obviously a problem for a company that sells running gear. Chris Bennett, a running coach who works at Nike, was still thinking about it as the meeting ended. And I was with uh, a coworker, and I said, I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't think it's that hard to get someone to run. And he said, well, what would you do? I said, I'd go for a run with them. He said, well, what do you mean you can't go for a run with everyone? And I said, well, if I'm, if I'm in their ears, I can. They laughed, but they also booked some time at a recording studio in the building. So two days later, I walked in, I went home, I wrote uh, a couple of scripts, the first run, the next run, the first speed run, and the comeback run. And we recorded them. And this would become the special sauce of the Nike Run Club app. They beta tested these guided runs. People loved them. And pretty soon, Chris Bennett was the voice inside a whole lot of runners' ears. All right, so one of those runners is me. I had had a long stretch where I'd stopped running altogether, and these things helped me get back into it. So to get a sense of what it's like to run with Coach Bennett, we're going to step outside NPR, and we're going to go for a run. You started. You began this run. You crossed the starting line. We are moving forward. All of this takes guts. We've got some positive affirmation from Coach Bennett right there. Let's make sure we start the run smart. That means easing into the beginning of the run. And this is one of the first little things I appreciated about these guided runs. You're probably starting out your runs too fast because one of the things he talks a lot about is ending the run, feeling good about it. I'm running up a hill as I say this and, and not ending the run feeling like I'm out of shape. I feel terrible because that is not a way to get yourself out going for another run and sticking with it. 3.2K done, that's basically two miles. And right now, I just want you to do a little breathing check while you bask in your newfound confidence that came from the courage you had to celebrate yourself. How are you breathing? And that's how these guided runs work. He pops in and out a certain distance and he'll come back in. Here's a little tip. Take that tip about breathing and bring it into the rest of your day. Sitting in traffic, getting tense, breathe. You can hear how I feel like I've kind of developed this relationship with this coach over the years, even though we've never talked. You know, it's peak running season right now. People are running marathons. The New York City Marathon is this weekend. And I thought, what better time to finally say hi to the coach who has been in my ear for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So we run together. We do run together, yeah. Back in the studio, I asked Chris Bennett, who up until this moment I had only known as Coach Bennett, about the themes that he comes back to in his coaching. One of them, I've heard you say this in a lot of different places, but I'm just going to read a line from one of your substacks. Let's just skip the part where you tell me you're slow. I already know you're slow. What's with that look you're giving me? Oh, no, you don't. Don't pretend you're hurt. You were literally about to tell me how slow you are. Yeah, that's what I thought. 
it made me laugh because I had already talked to our producer, Connor, about the fact I wanted to ask you about this. And then we were talking about how to put the segment together. And he said, well, I'll record you going running. And I caught myself starting to say, but I'm really slow. Uh huh. Why do you think we do that? Well, I think because we're just really terrible teammates to ourselves, And I think it's really just a defense mechanism. I think people would rather say, I'm not good at this. So then the expectations are so low that whatever happens, they're not disappointed. People come up to me, the, what they tell me right after they introduce themselves with their name is, I suck at running. And I'll say, all right, I believe you because this has to be based on trust. Now, my job as a coach is for you to leave me a little bit better. And if, if you can't make that leap of faith just yet, then you can keep referring to it as sucking less. The other exercise that usually gets people out of their own heads is to literally get them out of their own heads and imagine everything you say on the run to yourself, imagine saying it to someone you care about. You would never be this vicious. You would never be this cruel. You would never be this derogatory to someone you care about that's trying to get better. So if you can actually treat yourself like someone you care about, you suddenly become a much better teammate. Yeah. I mean, tied, tied up with all of this, some of the themes that you often return to in these guided runs is this idea of reframing the run, right? Like reframing the context of the fact that maybe you were slower, but hey, did you sleep well last night? Are you stressed? Maybe there's yeah. reasons for that what? And then also on the flip side, maybe this wasn't my fastest time, but I feel more relaxed. I'm in a better mood. Were things like that hard for you to figure out yourself? Oh, absolutely. They still are. I mean, I'm a, I'm a far better coach to other people than I am to myself. That goes without it's saying. It's always easier Which, to give you know, advice than follow it. Yeah, for me, especially when I was a competitive athlete, so much of the sport was based on the numbers on the clock that it robbed me of a lot of joy I think I could have had in the sport. And honestly, I think a lot of the breakthroughs I had in terms of coaching came from the fact that my first coaching jobs was it was seven years of coaching high school kids and my responsibility which i took very seriously was to make sure these kids left me better than when they had arrived and if the only way i was measuring that was they were faster then i would have felt like i failed my responsibility i i had to get them to be aware of the fact that their best day may not be their fastest day the day that they're most proud of may not end on an award stand. That makes me wonder though, do you ever feel like there's any tension in your mind at being somebody who's talking about, hey, you're probably actually running too fast, slow down a little bit, especially at the, at the beginning of the run, doing all of that, but working for this massive global company that is selling performance, that's selling self-improvement, that's saying this shoe, this shirt could maybe get you a little bit faster? Well, I think, no, because I think they, they should work together. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if your goal is performance, then all of these things should aid to performance. And I think this is where there's like a misconception about being kind to yourself. It's almost immediately equated with being soft or being weak. It is You can be kind, easier. you can be forgiving, and you can still oh, set, hard, set, set goals for yourself and hold yourself to a standard. Absolutely, and not only that, I mean, in terms of weakness or being soft, it, it is not heavy lifting to beat yourself up after a bad performance. It is way harder and takes way more courage to be kind. So if you're trying to instill in your athletes 
like a mental fortitude or endurance, then which are hard things or callous them mentally or physically, then teaching them to do hard things is how you do it. Yeah. I wanted to end with just a, a few questions about practical running advice. Yeah, sure. We're talking at peak marathon season. Uh, any advice for, for a first-time marathoner, somebody who's, who's anxious about seeing that through in the next couple weekends? Yeah, I think the first piece of advice is to be confident because what they may not realize is that the hardest thing about a marathon is doing the training to get to the starting line of the marathon. The butterflies are there because this matters to you, but you've done the work. And total flip side of that, uh, advice for somebody who's listening, who maybe it's been years since they ran, or maybe they've never run and they're thinking about it, but they're a little anxious or intimidated about actually trying. What would you say to them? I would say your first run, there is no minimum distance, there is no minimum duration, and there is no pace that you have to run. So head out the door and go run for five minutes. Most people will say five minutes, like that's not a real run. I can tell you it is because two days ago I did a five minute run and it counts. The cool thing is this is going to be the first run. And if you can end it knowing you could have gone further, knowing you could have gone faster and wanting to run again, there will be the most important run, which is the next run. And now we're off. That is Chris Bennett, Nike Running Global Head Coach, also known as Coach Bennett on the guided runs on the Nike Running app. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me.